Yeah. 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 Ye
theme of revelation. But in chapter 20, here we're reading today, he saw an angel coming and having the key. It's his key. And we've had this theme before that Christ is the key of David. And even in the promise to the apostles that um, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, the keys to the kingdom, but it does, it does say in that promise, whatever you bind on earth is bound. And so this is a, a key with a binding quality and a great chain, which means I'm going to lock it up and have you. Um, the key, the key from Isaiah 22:22, where the key of David is referenced, um, and Revelation 3:7, where he has the key uh, and who's been open and no one shot and shot and no one opens. So. Um, <laughs> This is a way of expressing the way that that the um, the activity and appearance of evil is under God's control. In in the drama of conquering human and angelic rebellions, God has it play out for a while. You know why why is it necessary, for example, for the Son of God to be tempted by in the wilderness by the devil. Well, it's, it's to show that he's the son of God, that the devil has the, the role there of, of proving the divine sonship, uh, even though that's not what he's trying to do. So um, all of this binding, letting out, is, is, a, is a symbolic way. Remember, we're being shown this through signs uh, of God's sovereign control of it all. We'll lock him up here. He's got to be let out at the end to finish the story, but he can't really touch the elect of God, who um, who are safe from his um, power. Is this application of applications seventy A.D. and Okay. Or have we shifted more into a prophetic? No, I, I think that, that, that yeah, this, this is a good question here, but we want to, um, let, let's, uh, what we want to highlight here is that, and this is really important in our understanding of Revelation and of the church in general, is that, so when, let, let's ask this question for all to consider. When was Satan bound? When was Satan conquered? At the at, well, at the cross. cross and resurrection combination of the two. Okay. So since that is that is so, in a certain sense, when he um, comes down, having the key and chains the the evil one, this this is symbolically referring to the, it's a very truncated way of, deci- of, descri- of uh, describing the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, which have the effect of binding the evil one. That's true. Then he was let out about death. No. We now, this is why we're so important to look at this the way the Bible's working at. In, 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 in the way the scripture's looking at it, the way John's looking at it, the kingdom of God, the, Satan was conquered in the cross and resurrection. The kingdom was established in the outpouring of the spirit. The kingdom of God now is in the world conquering, going out to conquer. We talked about that yesterday. They are tabernacled in heaven. The church lives in the presence of God through the spirit, but it does its ministry on earth. And that is the kingdom of God now. And the evil one can't touch it. He's in existence, so he's bound. That does, does not mean that he doesn't do anything, has no, you know, doesn't have any power because we just had an epistle today that our adversary, the devil, roams about. But when we live in Christ faithfully, he doesn't have the ability to touch us. He has the ability to touch us when we fall into unfaithfulness. So he is released. 
No, he's bound. You can't. If you stay faithful, he can't touch you. He's bound in a way that he can't get you. But that's not his. That's not him being unbound. That's you falling into temptation. So look. So look and think about it this way. I thought. Why can't you tell us this like fifteen years? I I thought about a a analogy once when I was walking through a parking lot and there was a pickup truck and there's a dog. There's a big a Doberman or something in the back, and he came charging at me. He's like, ah! And but he was chained, so he came to the back gate, and he couldn't get any closer. And it's like, but I, as long as I didn't enter into the the, the place where he he had access, but he was chained, I was safe where I was safe. And if you think about this, it it makes sense of the New Testament. If, if we Abide in Christ. No one's able to snatch us out of His hands. There's one uh, story in the New Testament where Saint Paul is talking about discipline in Corinthians, where he says, I, "I'm going to turn him over to the you know to the power to the evil one, so that he can so be saved in the day." Which means, what's he get? It means he's going to relieve, remove him from the church. It's going, he's going to discipline him. And that's the idea. That's, so the, 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 the revelation and the New Testament, Testament take very literally the reality of the church as the place where God's people live in the spirit, are connected to God in heaven, and cannot be, can certainly be tempted, tested, just like our Lord was, but not conquered as long as we remain faithful. And that's what St. Peter was saying in our epistle this morning. It was last Sunday's epistle, so if you don't work there this morning, that's a good. That, that you know, uh, be clothed with humility. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a, roams about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But he can only devour you if you fall into deception or temptation. So that you enter into the place where he has the ability to do that. Um, Peter did that on Monday, Thursday. Denied and had to, had to go through this time of, of, of repentance and restoration. It was restored. That's the scene by the Sea of Galilee. That's the whole purpose of the church's grace of forgiveness. That if we sin and fall and, 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 and drift away... The church has the power, the authority in the name of Christ to forgive and to heal and to bring back into fellowship so that you're no longer out there. And it, it, it speaks of the reality that life in the world outside of the kingdom is a different realm <laughs> where temptation is more real and we're more susceptible. And that's why when we're in those spaces, we have to be, we have to be watchful. We have to enter into the world as citizens of the kingdom, aware of the various temptations of politics. I'd like to hear you expand on that. Would you now? Like you uh, want to point out about the about the millennium? You want? Or where? Yes. No, I'm, I'm giving you our time. Of, said, of course, yeah. Reading out of this is very mind bending. The fact that a thousand years is allegory or pointing to something that is beyond the scope of, of our time. And, and in fact, it's interesting that he notes that no one on earth, not even Methuselah, made it to a thousand years old. Made it to 930 years old, whatever. Couldn't quite make it to the millennium, which, you know, and, and so to contemplate what what, what is being said here in a thousand years, millennium, when you think about 2,000 years from when Christ was on this earth, and so that's beyond the millennium, quote unquote, and yet it's not because we're in the millennium. Right? Well, I mean, yeah, we're, again, we're, we're in the middle of a book that's highly, highly symbolic. Yeah. Where numbers represent things yes. and and don't and, and aren't uh, always literal, and so it makes sense since this is literally the only place in the entire Bible where 
this is referred to as a thousand years, that it probably corresponds simply with that sort of um, a great age in which Christ reigns. So yeah, and the whole um, literalness that needs it to be a thousand years, I mean, that's one reason that around the first millennium of the church, there was a little bit of that yeah, excitement nice. about, okay, a thousand years, okay. maybe he's coming, because you know, we take it literally, but um, yeah, that's right. So it's, to me, you know, there's, again, if you're um, in to prophecy radio and dispensationalist uh, thought, which is the common idea of the rapture and um, these kinds of things, then there's lots of discussion, when, when's the millennium, when's the millennium? But historically, if you really, again, looking at the Bible in its own terms, that, that and John, above all, has this inaugurated eschatological viewpoint that the kingdom has come in Christ in his person. It has... Um, It, through the gift of the Spirit, the, the, it inaugurated the, 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 the kingdom in, in, on earth as something that's here, yet not fully here. But wherever it's spoken of, it's spoken of in real terms. This is the kingdom of God. So this is the reign. We've already seen all of Revelation. John went up and saw heaven, and we're going to get to that, four and twenty elders representing the church, kings and priests. When? Now. The fullness. So, and is it those who died? Is it us? Well, the reality, John is seeing, it's all of us. It's with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, that that's the reality of our prayer. It's joined, and, and that's the reality in which we live. Um, and it is why the, 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 the burden of the spiritual life is to live in that reality. We talk about living a life of prayer. We're not trying to tell you to, you know, try to make your life a world more spiritual, but to or orient your life around the central reality of your being, which is your union with God, and live in the world out of that space, and in that narrative of the kingdom, which begins at baptism and conversion, and has its telos as the resurrection, and sees life in the world as the, as the arena in which we're moving towards that, versus the idea of, you know, the sort of sec what we might call the secular ideal, where your your life is you're born into earth at some birthday, you're going to die someday. And, and the real focus of your life is how you're going to succeed in the world between birth and death. And God serves the purpose of coming into that life, and you ask him for things. And God is good when he gives you good things, and when he gives you bad things, you know, we complain. But in the narrative of the kingdom, we understand, as St. Peter was saying, and it is said in our Sunday epistle, the bad things, that the trials of the world are part of being in the kingdom. Just like Jesus' trial in the wilderness was part of being in the kingdom. So that's the central reality. And, and so the, the real thing that answers, again, I think answers the millennium question and answers the time frame here is once we understand that Christ conquered the evil one in his life and death, and established the kingdom with the coming of the Spirit, this is the route we're living in now. And that's the power we live in in Christ in our prayer to be kept safe from all of that. And this, and Revelation is very clear seeing a big difference between um, those tabernacled in heaven with God and those who are not. And it's, it's so much so that we'll see that it's, it's, it's those who are, ta who are with in Christ are alive and those who are not are dead. And that's Pauline, incidentally. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, who's rich in mercy, you know, made us alive together in Christ. 
That's what it means to be, and, and this is like, it gets lost because we've fallen into a view of, of you, kind of universalism, you know, everyone's kind of got to be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. Bible, it, the, the reality of sin is that it separates us. It doesn't mean we have to consign each and every, you know, we don't know the judgments of God. We do know that, that nobody apart from what Christ has done is saved. However, it's applied apart from his mercy. And that's what Revelation pretty clearly symbolizes. And once we understand that, it makes sense. And if we don't, it can be very confusing. So let's look at a few other things here. Um, so it says an interesting thing, verse 2, uh, the dragon, that serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, this is also mentioned in chapter 12 when Michael fought. Um, but it connects. This is a connecting of the dots. We've had in the Bible the serpent in the garden. We've had the Satan, the accuser of Job in the Old Testament. And we have the devil who appears in the Greek of the New Testament. And John is telling us this is all the same guy. Same being. They cast him in, he bound him, he should see the nations no more. It doesn't mean, again, there's that, that in a certain sense, what it means is he doesn't have the power to stop the progress of the gospel. The nations that don't know Christ are already in that state, but the gospel is going out to call people to faith. After these things, he must be released for a little while. So it does posit here that at the end, before the second coming of Christ, there is some last gasp of evil for the final victory. So in terms of, of the power of Jesus over the evil one, um, there's a number of verses, um, but I can quote here from Luke 11, 20-22, where Jesus says, but when, they, when they said he was casting out demons by Beelzebub, one of our Trinity Gospels, he says, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, truly the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him and takes from him all his armor which he trusted and divides his spoils, Jesus saying, I'm the strong man who's binding the evil one. Now, and that's, that's how he could cast out demons. We have another story in Luke 8.27. When the demon saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, because many demons had entered him, and he begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Then Jesus lets them go into the pigs, the unclean animals, which run down into the sea, which is symbolic of the abyss. So all of this shows, it's just countless stories, New Testament, this is what, how Jesus reveals his power as the son of God, is that he has the power over evil. Evil ones know who he is. And they know who he is. And so for us, as with Christ, the, 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 the devil demons have power to tempt and to test, but not to do whatever they want to do with us. And then, as far as, as the disciples in Luke 10, 10, 18, 19, then the 70 returned with joy when he sent out 70 others, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's a story in Acts where um, 
some Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva, I want to say, come to mind right now, where they see that, that Paul is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And uh, so this this guy goes up to the, you okay, Mary? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, he goes up to, um, get, he tries to perform an exorcism into, in the name of this Jesus who Paul's talking about come out, and the demons overwhelmed them and beat them up. It's like, so there's a distinction between actually having the Holy Spirit and the power of the name of Jesus and, and, and magic. It's not magic. You can't just, that's kind of what that was about. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven because of the name. So this this kind of symbolic binding, locking, we, you know, for us, we're very, it, it's a symbolic image of the power of the name and power of Jesus that binds this. It doesn't mean like he could never do anything. It's an image. And like all images, it makes a point, but it doesn't make every point. Just like every parable makes a point, it doesn't make every point. And the, I just want to highlight again that I just want to highlight that um, bottomless pit of the New King James is the abyss. That's a, a Greek abusos, and that's the abyss, which appears regularly as the abode of demons in the place they're destined to be, to be saved. And then um, the victory of the cross, again, to highlight this, uh, and, and we also want to think back here to um, chapter 12, when Michael fought and the dragon and his angels fought, and there wasn't any room found for the dragon in heaven anymore. And then about, he says, uh, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of this testimony because they didn't love their lives to the death. It's the victory that everybody in Christ has over this by the blood and name of Jesus. And here's a, here's a quote from Colossians. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And the image there is, is this, the binding and chaining. When you defeat someone in a battle, you got to drag them through the town and here, here, here's my, here's what I've done. So, but again, this victory is not some future victory. It's the victory of the cross that's already happened, that we live in now. And I, I think that the idea of deceiving the nations no longer, because there is a sense, again, in which the evil ones that work in the world, I look at the Second uh, Corinthians 4, 4, where St. Paul says, whose minds, this is the unbelievers, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, to the image of God, should shine on them. So there is a blindness, but... I think the idea of you can't deceive the nations is that as the gospel goes out and is preached, all those who are in the book of life and destiny will hear it and receive it. And again, it's the sovereignty of God in orchestrating that, that he can't stop the march and progression of the gospel. At least for our God's purpose. All right, let's move on to verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. 
and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. For they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign within a thousand years. Thrones. We've already had thrones in Revelation. Who are these people? The church. The four and twenty elders sitting on a throne. How are we described in Revelation 1? Um, And he's made us two kinds of things to God. Kings and priests, or kingdom of priests and kingdom. But royalty and, and, and priesthood. So when you have thrones... The people, and Jesus said to the, to, to the, to the apostles, uh, uh, you, you who follow me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's what it means to reign with Christ. Now, this is the reality then that when we live in Christ, by our prayer and by our faithfulness and by our witness, we reign with Christ right now. The power of the church's prayer, the power of its faithful witness uh, is part of the advance of the kingdom that the devil cannot overcome. And this is something I think Christians forget a lot because especially things with the, you know, listen, people are called to be activists in various ways, and I'm not speaking against prophetic voice, we have to be very careful to think that the main way we influence things is by political activity designed to influence a vote or an election and not prayer and faithful witness. That's how we reign in, it's very clear in Revelation, what are these four and 20 elders doing? They're offering worship. They're offering insight, which the prayers of the saints. Where, why do judgments come from God? In response to the prayers of the saints and their faithful, innocent witness so that God judges in their favor, just like he judged in Christ's favor on Easter. And when we get sucked into the um, reactive responses to the world so that we look a lot like the world, we get pulled out of this ruling, and we get sucked into things. We have to be careful about that. Again, I'm not saying that we don't have the prophetic voice, things don't need to be said, but it is a very much a balance between determining the main way we influence the world is by entering fully into it and fighting its battle. This world is not perfectible. No matter who we elect, it's not the Messiah. And we have to be very, very careful to, to understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the world, and to understand the priority of faithfulness and prayer over any temporal allegiance. One of the problems, I mean, I, I will, I will, a great peril digress here into a, 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 slot, a slight thing. If you really want to be involved in prophetic voice of the King's God in politics, and let's say you're a Democrat, your probably main initial voice will be to your own people. Likewise, you're Republican, the same thing. Listen, and, and this is the problem because part of the, part of the, 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 um, temptation of politics is you have an issue that you get drawn into a group with. Yeah, they're for this issue, but they're for a lot of issues. And then, but you don't like this issue, but they have your issue. They just want your votes. You're all on board. So all of a sudden you're on a platform that has a whole bunch of things that really aren't kingdom things, but you've been co-opted for your vote by this one thing. So to, to to be involved in politics prophetically 
uh, would be to speak to your own people prophetically. And I mean, for me, it would be if I were more conservative, I would I would prophetically say that we can't determine everything by the bottom line. If I was more liberal, I would say you can't not value life in its weakest forms and say you value life. But I'd stay. That's how I you know. Those are prophetic messages that are needed for both groups. And and then you'd be unpopular. And then guess what? You'd be a Christian. That's you cannot. That's where you're going to be. No one's when you really speak the truth. It, it's kind of fun. I don't, I don't want to belabor this point, but I've been thinking a lot about it with. Um, you know, I'm a sports fan, and, but I realize the sports are definitely not the kingdom, but all these realignments now, and why are they doing that? Well, because everybody's going where more money is. And it's funny how the moral choices follow the money. And it's funny, even the prophetic witness of athletes doesn't seem to call to task the errors of the people they're getting money from. And, and so this is this is the captivity to it, and just be aware. That's where compromise comes in, which is why to be really free and prophetic, you have to be free from the need to please someone who's giving you money. And very few people are in that spot. Not the least, you know, we all have these, like, oh, it'd be hard to say that, you know, and, but that's... Um, Sunday's gospel, first pull the beam out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the mote out of your brother's eye. That's the problem with the world, is if temporal victory is your goal, you will sacrifice larger principles for that temporal victory. If eternal victory is your goal, you're, you're going to continue to move in the other direction where you might say, God, I'd like to add that, but i got to let that go because there's, there's, it's temptation for me. Very good. Thank you for sure. Yesterday at lunch, my son, he's 13, said, if someone gave you $10 million, would you leave your church now and never go back? And I was like, yay! <laughs> but then he said a trillion, and I was like, well, uh, well it's, what's inter- it's, what's, I'll tell you, a slightly, off, a slightly, you know, just off-color joke is not too bad. But the, a guy walks into a bar and sees and see a gal, and he says, uh, you know, we you we you um, sleep me with me for 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 uh, you know for you know, like a million dollars. She's like, okay. He says, um, okay. Well, will you sleep with me for a hundred dollars? And he she slaps him and says, what kind of woman do you think I am? He says, we've already established that. Now we're just negotiating price. Oh, and the, that's the question is, if yeah. think about it, what. She, if you're for sale at some price, yes. we already know who you are. It's like we had, uh, you know, um, prophet Balaam. Yeah. You know, also money. I got to do a God to speak. I can only say what God tells me. But gosh, that's a lot of money. So then we we find a way to manipulate. And be, you know, so all that stuff is there. So that's. That's what we have to be aware of in our own lives. Our own innocence working for us. I'm not, I'm certainly not being self-righteous to have all kinds of things to do, but, but to be aware of that's what we have to deal with is where are we captive so we lose our prophetic voice. And that's really the problem when the church dives into this. It becomes a partisan for a cause that's not the church's cause. The souls of those, and judgment was committed to them, souls of those who have been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Now, it's interesting here, the beheaded thing, because we've, we've had earlier in Revelation reference to the souls who were slain. Um, but there's one particularly important guy in the New Testament who got beheaded, John the Baptist. And there may be a kind of a reference to this Maybe even you know that 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 uh, of John representing the old covenant saints of, of his specific place, and of course the church has always recognized him as a saint. Um, so those who are dying 
for the word of God are living. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, the rest of the dead didn't live until the thousand years were finished. The rest of the dead. Who are the rest of the dead? Everybody who's not on the redeemed. Positionally dead in the world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's that's the framework here. We don't, you know, people can refuse to accept that that's what it's saying. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has his part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They shall be priests of God and of Christ. and shall reign within a thousand years. I don't think there's, you know, it, it, it sounds cryptic, first resurrection, second resurrection. It's not that cryptic. Romans 6, 4. We were buried with Christ through baptism. So that we'd be raised and walk in newness of life. Colossians. Buried with him in baptism, which you also raised with him through faith in the working of God and raised him from the dead. That sounds like a resurrection to me. I understand why. What, what don't you understand about it? The rest of the dead did not live again. Until the thousand years were finished. And they did. So here's, here's okay, let, let, this is that, um, I think I sent this verse out if you looked at it, but uh, John, so he, let, me, let me explain it and then, then read a little bit of John here. Um, the rest of the dead, so, so everyone's dead apart from Christ. But those who participate in the first resurrection of baptism conversion and die to sin and rise to life are now alive. But the rest of the dead, those who don't participate in the first resurrection, are still dead. They won't come to life till the end when the final judgment, when all will be raised to face judgment. And now this is what John chapter 5, verse 25 to 29 says in two separate verses. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. When is this coming? The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and if they hear, they'll live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's the first resurrection. Now, it goes on. Do not marvel at this, but the hour is coming. It's not yet. The first hour was now is. The hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Exactly paralleling a revelation, which are both Johannine in origin. <clears throat> the first resurrection is those who hear the voice of the Son of God respond with faith and live. The second resurrection is all the dead in the judgment of the last day. We will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. So it's not really all that. It's cryptic in a little way, but it's very consistently biblical. What is interesting, and actually I had, this is a new thing that, that my reading through Chilton on this kind of picked up, was that this Bringing the dead to life is intimated in the Old Covenant in the whole process by which um, people, the unclean, are made clean. So in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days, cut off from the camp, unable to participate in life. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he shall be clean. 
they come back to life. Water, baptism, life. Unclean, dead, sin. And so, so this is this is now, that's an, a ritual external cleanness that the uncleanness and cleanness and life that pertains to the old covenant. The new covenant now is internal. Third day is the third day like Christ rising. Speaking of cells on both days. Yeah, a lot, a lot of ways to probably work that in, in addition to directions. But again, then, so the first resurrection, and, and to me, the more when I start connecting what Revelation is saying with the New Testament is very obvious that the res were raised from the dead in baptism. Baptism liturgy make it clear, Easter Easter and Easter Vigil liturgy make it clear, we've come to life, we're, we're alive, we have life. It's a reality that people who don't have Christ don't have. It doesn't mean say everyone's going to hell that, but this is the motive for witness is we want people to have this life. It's, 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 it's the biblical perspective is that the world by its own sin and by you know, demonic deception was cut off from God. God is always working to go out and bring people back. And the gospel goes out and calling people to faith to bring people back. And if people refuse to, to come back, that's you know, okay, but this is the only way you can only have life by being connected to God. If you're not connected, you can't have life in a way that's not connected to God, because God is the source of life. And the only thing you have apart from God is the only other alternative, which is death. That's just the state of things. It's, it's, it's part of the the problem of our current world being, you know, cut off so from the vision, the, this holistic vision of God, of living in God, and whether it be the the sexual morality things or the gender things, but the reality is, you cannot create your own reality. There is a world God has made, and it is a certain way. You 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 can't. And if, when you take a part of that and say, I don't want it to be this way, I want it to be that way, you can, there you, that's all you have. So when your temporal life with that is done, that's all it is. Sacramental life pertains to living in this world, seeing everything in this world as a sign that points us to the eternal and participating in this world in a way that is communion with the eternal, receiving the gift of creation, thanking God for it, giving Eucharist, receiving it back as a gift, and using it as stewards. And when God says no to something, we know that's not life, that's death. I'd be tempted to do it, might stumble in it in weakness, but but it, because it's non-sacramental, it doesn't... The only things that have eternal value are things that participate sacramentally in the eternal. The things that don't point to that are just what it is you have. Good luck with it. Suck the juice out of it because there's nothing out of it. And that's part of the anger of the world is it wants to have it its own way and it's mad that it doesn't work. And you, it, my, my, one of my points about a lot of the stuff you see in the world, that if this freedom from God's constraints is so life-giving and freeing, why are people so unhappy about it? Everybody who's demanding it seems to be miserable, angry. You would think that if this was freedom, you would be... And we, though, as the church, this is for, for us our own consideration, is we should be joyous and happy. We have life in the midst of a world of death and hope. Even though we suffer, we have this thing that can't be taken from us. And there should be an evident joy in that, even in the face of suffering. And this is another problem of, of, of a church that, that has to be temporally triumphant, is it puts on an angry face. It's no more happy than the world. 
that's as angry and discontented as the world is. Okay. Go to verse uh, 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will be released, not break out. And that's the whole point. Whatever he's doing, you know, so I want to, the sovereignty of God, the purpose of, of, of God allowing spiritual and physical beings to make choices but God always remaining sovereign over those choices so that even the evil works for the good. This is actually in the, in the whole um, theology, philosophy of the connection between sovereignty and free will. And you can get into error, heresy, if you go too far one way. Sovereignty becomes double predestination without a choice. Free will becomes too much freedom without the software. And, and if you think about life, if you think about your own life, that that actual paradoxical balance of sovereignty and free will, we absolutely depend upon. Because if you thought you were going to get up today and you had no choice to make, no choice to love or not love, give or not give, serve or whatever, you just, just what you can do. That'd be a pretty bleak world. All predestined. Just, um, but if you knew that all the choices you make were in and of themselves determined of everything, you were responsible to make meaning and purpose, you were responsible for making it all work together for good, that would be frightening. So we need freedom to be who we are, but we really need God to make all things work together for good for those who love and are called to his purpose. So the fullness of life requires that harmony. And that's why we understand that even we made a dumb choice, we realize that we can learn from it and God can use it. So the devil rebels and God allows him to sneak into the garden and have a conversation with first humans because God's purpose is that he wants us to be He's going to test us, not test us to get us to fail, but as Deuteronomy says, to know what's in our heart to reveal. And so he's going to be released here for a purpose of God. But always within God's purpose. And we'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, this is a reference from Ezekiel 38-39 and modern prophecy or contemporary. They run amok with this, and a lot of times Gog or someone was Russia, and of course you can run amok with that now uh, if you want to. But it's clearly a symbolic reference to the rebellious nations that, um, that rise up against God. Four corners of the earth, but they're in the four corners. They're not, um, in other words, it, it's a reference to universality of all who rebel against God, not a particular geographical location. Whose number is the sand and the sea gathering together for the battle. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now, you could mistake this to say they're going to physically surround Israel or Jerusalem. But Revelation has already spent 19 chapters letting us know that the beloved city is the heavenly Jerusalem. It comes down to heaven from God. It's not the geographic. So you have to stay in that milieu of meaning to get what's happening. Unfortunately, a lot of prophecy teachers don't. And this means that the powers of evil surround the church. But notice, so we'll be tempted, we'll be pushed and pulled, and you know, I don't know if we're at the very end now, maybe 
go on for another hundred years, thousand years. We'd have no idea, but we could certainly feel the sense of that, that the sort of temptations coming upon us. But notice, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It's a great battle here, but no, it doesn't. It doesn't go on very long. He gathers them, and the victory. Um, now there's a. Um, in First Corinthians that talks about you know the, the levels of the battle. Um, so okay, I'm reading from First Corinthians fifteen twenty five. For he must reign, that is, Christ. And we must reign with him. Till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted, that is, the Father. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. He goes on to, 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 to talk about, in 1 Corinthians 15, the ultimate resurrection. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And this pertains to what we're going to um, hear here. It says... Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the last full and final end of evil. And a full and final end of, 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 of death because there won't be any more of it. Um, Christ is reigning. That reign will continue until the very last battle when his reign will be made universal again. Um, the whole lake of fire thing is something that um, Jesus was very consistent with. Therefore, as it here from the wheat and tares parable, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, poetically and theologically, PSL has a great section of the poem on this, but remember this fire. Remember on Pentecost, the tongues of fire descended. And the image of the Holy Spirit is an image of fire that purifies and refines. So this fire. The other fire is that God will be all in all. And if there's not a reception, willing, of the life he gives that purifies and makes whole, the only alternative is this other, the torment, of trying to resist the irresistible. And so the fire of God is the same in either, in the, in the stanza from the four court test, uh, to be consumed by fire or fire. But either burn with the love of God or ultimately are overcome. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and on and him who sat on the throne, from whose face the whole earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found. Now the throne here might be thought to be God the Father, but since this is a white throne, 
and Christ is ridden on a white horse and come on a white cloud. There's a kind of a connection with this, and this seems to be the Son of Man coming and sitting in judgment. And the earth fled. There's a Psalm uh, 114 that talks about when God comes, the mountains shake and the earth trembles at God's presence. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This is that second part of John. Death. Now all are going to rise. This is the judgment. And books wrote. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. Now, there's a lot of consternation sometimes in the idea of salvation by faith alone with this emphasis on works here. But um, I sent out a, a, a number of Bible verses with the notes. Uh, Matthew 16, 7, Romans 2, 6 through 13, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. It makes it abundantly clear that works are judged. And the idea is, and this is connected by St. James chapter 2, verses 17, 18, who shows that our faith is shown by what we do. It's not a, and what we have here is not a, um, it's not a judicial weighing of good and bad to know if you have more bad, you know, more good than bad. It is the character of your faith in Jesus revealed in works that bear witness to it. And in Christ, the stumbles and the things we confess and overcome don't count anymore. But if, if we profess to have faith but don't love, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't give incarnational witness. So works are not working your way in, but they are that out of our life or prayer, out of our communion with God, out of our fellowship in the church, should come love. Should come this 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 desire to give, and if it doesn't, that's a witness that the life that we're not really don't really have the life. Um, by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for them. So there, so there's. Um, Judged by works. But those who had their part in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. So through baptism and faith, we live in Christ, and as we continue and persevere in faith, this judgment is not for us. This is the judgment we're saved for from because our names are in the book of life. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the, this is the second death. First death is, is natural. Is, is, well, the first death, I suppose, is the death of sin, but I think here's talking about natural death. And then here's the second death, which is eternal death. Death and Hades are therefore intermediate states here that in the lake of fire which Jesus referred to as Gehenna is the final. So the intermediate states now, the transitional states, are becoming permanent. Hades was physical death, right? That's the idea that you died and your spirit goes to the place where the part spirits go. But we get this in the parable of the rich man Lazarus. So do you think he gets a second chance? We don't know. There's no indication that he does. Right. We could certainly hope that as many people have as many chances as possible, but there's no indication in the narrative that the great goal fixed is all going to sudden have a bridge. And you know the thing about when you read it as it's clearly being presented, it does remind us of reality. I think deception is sometimes into it doesn't really matter. God loves everyone. Yeah, those are half truths. Like all half truths, it 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 it, it does matter what you do. It does matter. God 
being separate from God, it does matter if we respond to his invitation to come back and And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You don't have life, there's only one. Well, I think I think honestly here, the, the idea of a book of life is these are symbols. I mean, I don't, you know, I think he's gotten, you know, a, a two hundred thousand, you know, page book or something. But that the idea is that your name is written, you're, it's established, it's known, it's it's recorded that God knows your name. It's in the software somewhere. It's in the software somewhere. It can be recalled. It's not ephemeral, and, and that's huh? not a believer. Well, I mean, it says like we are written, you know, we're where the scriptures written on us, and it says in Revelation too, right, that the the clothes of the saints are written, the good deeds that they've done. And then also, like your sins will be erased, like why does? That's what I think of confession. <laughs> Please, it's erased all of them. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the promise. Yeah. That's what it says. This is, this is just what this is saying to us. And uh, when we embraced it, it's really good news. Evil will be defeated, even though it doesn't look like it's being defeated. We're going to try it, even doesn't look like we're winning. We have life. Midst of a world of disorder and death. That's very good news. All right, we'll pick up 21 next week. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. The Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace. Amen.